You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. My guest today on the pod is Catherine Price who is dubbed the Marie Kondo of brains by the New York Times. Uh, She's an award-winning science journalist and speaker and the author of How to Break Up with Your Phone. Um, And she's got a really terrific new book. It's called The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting to yes and. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Catherine Price, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So you and I had a small exchange when you were first booked to come on the podcast to talk about your new book, and you shared uh, your somewhat disastrous experience in taking improv classes in New York City. Uh, That being said, to my delight, towards the end of the book, you say that despite your cringy experience with improv, that, quote, it introduced me to a tool that has shaped my life ever since the philosophy of yes and, end quote. So this seems like the right podcast for you to come on. It does seem like the right podcast for me to come on. As long as you don't try to get me to do improv comedy on the show, then it's no, the right podcast. We do not make you <laughs> improvise. And I'm, I'll share, I don't know if I've shared this secret, which is like, there's nothing I hate more than going to an improv show and being called on. Oh, that's actually really reassuring to hear from you. Sorry, yeah. that was an involuntary. Oh, I didn't even realize I made that sound. That's my nightmare. I never wanted to be the kid who was called on for anything in this in that context. Write answers. I'll give you answers. But I did not like give me an idea. Come up on stage. No, thank you. I do not want to do that. Yeah. So so let, but let's talk about that a little bit, because it, um, uh, so you you got the philosophy and the philosophy is all over the book. You know, we talk about being fiercely present in the moment that's in there, all, all that kind of stuff. But it was the actual act of doing it that just didn't like click for you. Here's the thing. I'm really bad at pretending because I've thought a lot about this. Huh. I don't like acting and I don't like pretending. So I'm fine with improvisation and all sorts of other areas in my life, like conversational improvisation, you know, yeah. just, or being, I'm doing. not right. Like I'm not, I don't think of myself as an uptight person, but if you ask me to take on a persona that is not me, I shut down. I yeah. just cannot do that. And it, and it makes me just feel horrible. I remember one of the first times I met my now sister-in-law 
And for some reason, charades was played. Why? I don't know why. Or, or celebrity, you know, where there's like a round of charades. And I was like, I'm really bad at charades. And she's like, oh, sh- whatever. Everyone says that. I'm sure you're fine. I was like, no, I am really bad at charades. Mm. Really bad. And finally, we get to the charades part. She was like, you're really bad at this. And I was like, I yep. told you that. Yes, interesting. That is not my strong suit. So I think I, I like to think it's because I, 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 you know, feel most comfortable with my authentic self. But I also just really suck at acting. So, so you you come off uh, 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 not like someone who would not be good at improv, and and it, but I'm also aware of this term me search. So, is writing about like this the power of fun? Something that's looking at like oh I self judge, oh I, I experience too much shame. Is there any little bit of that? <laughs> Yeah, I think that, well, I was very shy as a child and actually really do have Hmm. these memories, very few regrets, but some of the specific ones do involve being so shy that I didn't say yes and to things, which I put together that it was a, it was a solid no, you know, and one of them was actually getting called on in a performance of wait, toys in Babeland. I always get this confused. There's babes and toys, babes and toys, but toys and Babesland is is a sex shop in San Francisco, but the other one that's not the one that's a children's show. (laughs) And I went with my family and they called on me. It was like, I was a plant and I didn't know it to wind up Mm -hmm. these toys on stage. And I was, and all these other kids are straining in their seats, like pick me, pick me, pick me. And they picked me. And I was like, no, thank you. I do not want to do that. You know? And that was kind of a theme in my childhood. I was asked to be the narrator and where the wild things are in first grade. And I was too shy. I wanted to be an apple tree. And I was an apple tree with a paper mache trunk, you know, but then I regretted it. So I, I definitely have a history of being very shy and not necessarily coming out of my shell. I would say that that's not been true for my adult life in part because of those early regrets, but right. yeah, I think that I'm certainly like many people I would assume who who <laughs> listen to your show and who go into comedy, you know, have a lot of self-judgment and self-criticism. And I just used to be much, much harder on myself. And I think trying to be kinder to myself, which I think very much is what yes and on a personal level is about, um, has been very motivating for me. So in that sense, yes, definitely. This is definitely a very personal project. We uh, had Dan Pink on the podcast recently, and his new book is called The Power of Regret. And one of the things that that he finds useful about regret is just what we're talking about, which is, oh, so let's let's actually note that the that that was not maybe the wrong choice, or or, or maybe I could have taken a braver choice, and so I'm going to choose to try to do that more in the future. Right. I think that the idea of trying to let go of the regret, but then use the lesson from it as a motivating yes. force. Like it's okay that I wasn't the narrator in where yes. the wild things yeah. are. It's all right, right? It's really right. It's all right, but you can, <laughs> can but you can maybe that. say yes and now. Yes. Uh, okay. So, uh, being married to a tenured professor of comedy, I'm keenly aware of how little academia has studied things like comedy, humor, and fun. Mostly placing it in the realm of philosophy, which is the least fun category you could possibly <laughs> be. Not that I don't love philosophy. I read it. I'm, I'm into it. Um, not fun. Um, so you set out to create your own definition of true fun that you diagram as the confluence of playfulness, connection, and flow. So I love this. Um, my, my wife has this uh, comedy theory that she plays around with uh, uh, pain and distance uh, and um, uh, truth. Uh, but oh, I, what I wanted her. to get, I did. Okay, cool. I've heard yeah. That. Oh yeah. Well, that's in the uh, humor. Uh, that's in the, um, uh, uh, Naomi and, um, uh, and Jennifer's book, book. Yeah. That we were okay. talking about, uh, before we got on. Uh, so I'd love to break down each of those and, and sort of starting with playfulness, because to me, I, I find that akin to creativity, which is a state that is purposely messy and non-judgmental. Um, so I'm curious, like talk to us how you think of playfulness. 
Sure. Also, I, I love the idea that we're going to now diagram fun, just things that sound. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Yeah. Things that aren't include diagramming fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I mean, as you just said, like it was just fascinating to me that that there's no good working definition of fun. And then I think partially as a result of that, there's no research on fun. Right. Um, also, because we tend to think fun is frivolous, which I would argue it is anything but. Um, and thankfully, I think most people listening to this agree with that intrinsically. Yep. But so I came up with this definition of playful connected flow. And I did that based both on my own experiences and then all. Also by getting feedback from this global group of volunteers, I called the fun squad, mm-hmm. where I had people share with me three experiences from their own lives that they would describe, quote unquote, as so fun. It was very academic and technical um, yeah. in the phrasing. <laughs> it was all caps. So fun. Because I wanted to see if I was crazy, which is also a theme. If we're talking about me search, an, an ongoing theme is, am I Fair. crazy? Which is, mm-hmm. I am crazy. But was this particular part crazy? Because I basically I had started taking this guitar class and I was feeling this sense of buoyancy and joy and energy that was carrying me through the week that didn't have to do with the skill per se. There was something else going on and I decided yeah. that was fun. But I'm mm-hmm. like, am I just really starved for human contact? Are other people feeling this sense of power from the fun? Anyway, so I came up with this definition. I checked it with this global group of people and asked them point blank after they shared their experiences, does this match with what you told me? And the vast majority said, yes, it does. So playful connected flow. I I think it's really interesting that playfulness makes so many adults kind of cringe. And I think that might have to do with the same reason that I cringe if you say charades to me, which it, it feels almost like you're supposed to pretend something or it feels like you're forcing yourself to be like a kid in a way that doesn't feel good. It just, I've had so many people being like, oh, I'm not playful. I, I can't, can't be playful. And then it requires a conversation of being like, no, it doesn't mean you have to play games. It's just, as you were saying, a lighthearted attitude. It's about not caring too much about the outcome, not getting too, or you can care, but you don't care too much. And also doing stuff just for the sake of doing it, just for the enjoyment of it, just for the fun of it. I think what's pretty crazy though to realize though is how infrequently that happens in our adult lives. Like how exactly. infrequently most people do stuff just for the sake of doing it, just to get a kick out of it. And then how infrequently we're able to let go of that inner critic who's always there on our shoulder telling us things like you suck at improv. Right. I I think too, well, um, one of the things we know, so one of our our, uh, very successful divisions at Second City is called Second City Works, which uh, uh, sells into corporate America, a lot of training content, different things like that. If we use the word play, we're not selling a thing. No. Even though what we're (laughs) selling is play. Right, Uh, right, right. we call it improv, we call it creativity, we call it innovation, all, all, all those things. And everyone understands that, but they, they like, and, and you even note this in, in the book. And, and it's such a shame because the, the amount of money that people make off of play, let's talk about gaming industry, which is the biggest. And I, I listened to a stat today that like the, the best, you know, successful movies will make you know, $5 million for a week for 30 weeks or whatever. Uh, Call of Duty makes $5 million a day for the last decade. Wow. Right. Right. But then you have sports and you've got all, all this and, 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 and movies and television of like, and all of that is play. There is acting, there's play that, that is like industry-wide. And, and yet, yet somehow in the business world, we feel like, oh no, that's not worthy of our examination. But, you know, but it's interesting, too, because in all, most of those examples, obviously, sometimes, many times people are playing the video games themselves. But there's also these huge industries of watching other people play yes, where you're right. not actually playing. Like you're not the people, you know, playing roles on television. You're not playing. They're playing in some yeah. way or the sports teams you're following. They're doing the playing. Also, they're taking it really seriously. But, yeah, I think that it's interesting to think about how resistant we are to playing ourselves and just kind of as a 
tangent, but one thing I'm kind of obsessed with right now that I feel is really relevant to our conversation is the idea of having adult play communities yes. or playmates, which always sounds vaguely dirty when you say, do you have any playmates? But because <laughs> I was just thinking, like, taking this guitar class that helped inspire this book introduced me to this whole group of people whom I'm not super close friends with. I'm certainly am true friends with some of them now because we have yep. spent so much time playing together. But there's plenty of people in this community that that we're not that close and it doesn't really matter because what we do is we get together to play and obviously we're literally playing instruments, but we're also just playing. Yeah, you're and, just I, playing. And, I, and I was mm-hmm. just thinking about how kids have playmates and they have play communities and, and it doesn't really matter if they're not very close to their classmate because they play together and it's such a joyful thing. But as we become adults, you know, we take on colleagues and we have family members, obviously, and we have dear friends that we share our deepest thoughts with, but we don't necessarily have these communities with whom we just play. Yep. And it's really been very powerful to me to tap into this play community and realize, oh, this really makes me feel alive. And I think that's true very much for the people that I know who are really into improv too. Yeah. So the, I literally just posted this on LinkedIn uh, before we started taping. There is a, um, we're, we're on this uh, management system called monday.com and my colleague Abby posted a journal entry that was uh, just came out in a geriatric uh, journal, and it's based on a, a program we did with Northwestern. We have a we have a thing called Humor Doesn't Retire, and it's improv classes for older adults. So the median age of this group was eighty three point six years old, and overwhelmingly, after the eight weeks, uh, they reported uh, greater ability in terms of cognitive thinking, positive attitude, um, re- made new friendships and relationships, and this is they're all in long term care facilities. And it's like, and I I don't think it's just improv. I just think the idea of older adults coming together to experience something we don't, as you pointed out, we don't do it. And and, we don't play together. And, but I think it's interesting that we also like, there's more of an acceptance. I would think of like, once you're retired or you're in a senior living home or something, think it's okay to play then. But what about this big, the big, (laughs) the big middle when we're all healthy and yeah, yeah, when you're like 16 (laughs) to 80, like what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. I've really become very interested in that because I've realized that's, like one of my favorite things to do um, is to organize, well, maybe the organization is not my favorite part, but friend camps for friends and their families. And we mm-hmm. got together last summer during a low point in the pandemic uh, in terms of infection numbers. And we spent three days just playing at the summer camp, you know, adults and kids alike. And like, I got dragged around this lake on a tube with my six-year-old daughter, just oh, awesome. And yeah. I stayed up till like three in the morning. I mean, I actually have a friendship bracelet on my wrist. I'm 43 years old. I got this big friendship bracelet from my summer camp experience. And it was so wow. fun. And everyone was so energized. It was so delightful to see other adults just look. Okay. But it was so wonderful to see this group of adults just playing with each other. And the kids were having fun too, but it was just neat to like read a hula hoop. And like everyone was using this hula hoop because I just left out props for people to play with as another thing I found really interesting is that you can leave out props that encourage people to let down their guard and become more playful. But like you're saying, you don't say now let's play. No, you just have, you just have them there and, and then they might get used. All right. Yeah. So the, the, uh, that's playfulness connection. Um, I found that also relating to meaning. Uh, and it's the idea that the thing we're doing has a kind of deep human merit. Huh? What do you mean by merit in that? I mean that there's a, there's 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 a c- connection spawns the idea that we're here for a reason doing the thing that we're doing. That's because because you t- you note the research and I- I've seen it too that human beings crave connection. That's 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 our thing, and it's why we form tribes. And sometimes it's it's uh, to you know 
otherize people, but uh, uh, more positive ways. It's about bringing us all together. Um, and I would suggest that what everyone's calling the great resignation is actually a crisis of meaning. Um, and th- that, that people sort of discovered of like, well, what am I doing and why am I doing it on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. Well, one thing that stood out to me when I was looking through the responses people gave me on this survey, when I was gathering anecdotes of fun from people around the world was that there was this, en- this, <laughs> this sounds very out there, but this, this energy running through them that was common to all of the anecdotes. They had, were very different in terms of their content. The experiences themselves might not necessarily have anything to do with each other, but there was this real feeling running through them that made me simultaneously smile while reading them, but also often tear up, which I think is kind of what you're getting Mm. at. There was this real profundity to it. This feeling of connecting with these strangers on a very human level, just by these little anecdotes they were sharing from their lives. You know, there was things like uh, someone talking about going out in the rain with their grandfather and deliberately getting soaked. And this stood out in their mind as Mm. true fun or someone else who um, volunteered in some Siberian orphanage after college and spent this entire afternoon singing and playing with these kids who didn't speak their language and, but having this real sense of shared connection through fun. And they said, I don't only even talk about this experience because I don't have a word to describe it, but the word to describe it is fun. But when I, when I read through these anecdotes, I also asked people, is there anything that surprised you about what you just told me? And one of the most interesting things that stood out from those responses is that in many cases, so I think you can have connection to a number, a number of different ways. It could be a connection yeah. to your authentic self. It could be a connection, to, deep connection to the activity you're doing. It could be a connection to your physical body in a way that you normally don't have. It could be a connection to a creature. You know, there was definitely fun being had with dogs, sometimes cats, but more often dogs. And, uh, but in the vast majority of cases, it was with other people. And so one thing that a number of people said in this response to the question of what surprised them was that they were self-proclaimed introverts. And yet, all of the anecdotes they just told me about having had so much fun involved other people. And so that was really the inspiration for this idea that there's an element of connection present when we have true fun. That plus when I asked people to identify some characteristics that they, they thought would describe what they had just told me, uh, having a, sorry, having a sense that they'd shared a special experience with someone that was one of the ones it was that and laughter. Those are the two highest yeah. chosen choices on that. Um, so that's where connection comes from. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds right. And then flow, my wife and I did this corporate workshop and they didn't tell us that um, uh, Mahaley uh, Chickman CI was the previous <laughs> the speaker before. Oh. So we walked, we walked in <laughs> in time to see his like presentation. We're like, we're not, you're making us follow the flow guy. Don't do that. Oh yeah. That's rough. He was brilliant, but also like so sweet and so kind. And we got to talk a little bit and, and the yes and stuff actually was a nice uh, continuation of that because it was a a different way of approaching uh, uh, flow. But for, for my audience who might not know his work, talk a little bit about flow. Yes. I had a theory that some of the peak moments of our lives are when we're in this state that he called flow. And that's basically getting so engrossed in your present experience that you lose track of time. So you can think about it as like an athlete in the midst of a game or someone who's in the middle of performing improv, somewhere where you're totally focused and engaged and present in the task at hand. Even a really engaging conversation will put you into flow. 
I think one of the important distinctions though, is that when people hear the idea that flow makes you lose track of time, they'll say things like, well, that happens when I'm scrolling through social media. That happens when I'm binge watching TV. I look up and I don't know what happened to the afternoon. So it's very important to distinguish that Csikszentmihalyi himself would would call that junk flow. That's more of a state of hypnosis. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not flow per se, because flow is an active and engaged state. And I think another important note to keep in mind about flow is that because it is an active engaged state of total presence, anything that distracts you is going to kick you out of flow. And since I at least believe that flow is a fundamental quality or or characteristic of fun, that in turn means anything that distracts us from our present experience is also going to prevent our ability to have fun. Yeah. Um, I do think that it's kind of great that in A Power of Fun book, the second chapter is titled Why You Feel Dead Inside. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's like two camps of people. There's the camp of people who are like me who are like, yes, that's great. Then there's the camp of people who are like, I didn't expect that one picking up a book about fun. And now I'll leave a review on Amazon. So- oh yeah. No, I, I immediately, when I was doing, cause I, I, I don't think that even when I went through, I, I read the whole book, but I don't often look at the chapter headings. Um, and I, I looked at, it, I just laughed. I went immediately across the hallway to my boss's office. Cause Paris is like, I, I've done all these burnout interviews and I'm like, these are all for you. Cause you work so effing hard uh but i pulled well, that and she goes well make sure uh, your guest knows that i do feel dead inside it's so funny well that's not uncommon nope <laughs> yeah more so but, than ever right now i think but i think too the the vital point that you make and you write this in the book quote our attention is the most valuable resource that we have i don't think people think that or know that normally I don't think so either i think that we might say, oh, our time is valuable. But when you really think about it, attention is more valuable than time because you can spend time with someone and be completely distracted. And that's really meaningless. In fact, I would almost argue it's worse than not spending time with them at all. We've all had that experience when you're with someone and one of you is on your device and only half present. And it just makes you feel kind of well dead inside and unloved and uncared for and just not good versus what it's like to be with someone where you are truly connected because you know that each of you fully has your attention on the other person. That's a very special experience. And that was something I took away from my last book, which was the direct precursor to this one. And that was called how to break up with your phone. Mm -hmm. And in that book, I really came to conclude, as you were just saying, that our attention is our most valuable resource because ultimately we're only going to remember what we pay attention to and we're only going to experience what we pay attention to. So all these micro decisions throughout the day where you decide where to spend your attention are actually add up to how you're spending your life. And to me, that was a really profound realization that made me definitely rethink how I interacted with my devices and that I try to remember each day. But then of course, the next step and the reason I wrote this book is that once you recognize the value of your attention, well, that's great. But the next step is to decide where you want to spend it. And right. that's what led to this um, pr- this book, The Power of Fun. Yeah. We've talked to a number of guests about the technology problem. Um, and one of those was Adam Alter, who had a terrific oh, yeah. book called Irresistible. Just, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I pulled uh, one of my best, uh, uh, the best things in that book is, is a study from Microsoft that showed that in the year 2000, the average human had an attention span of 12 seconds. By 2013, that number had fallen to eight seconds. A goldfish, by comparison, has an average attention span of nine seconds. Can I tell you something, Kelly? 
I actually yeah. fact checked that though because I was like, it's not true. Fast. It's not. There's no measurement of a goldfish's attention span. Isn't that kind of heartbreaking? But I feel Adam. like I set the record straight for the world that there's a. And I looked at this. It's actually a because you wanted to use it for the book. Deck. Yes, because how great is that? Like, oh, we have less attention span. Than I gotta take this out of my keynotes. I use this one all the time. Oh no, maybe you can forget that we had this conversation. But yeah, because what yeah. I realized is, like, first of all, how do you measure a goldfish's attention? But then second, um, I think they might actually have longer attention spans than us, honestly. But yeah, yeah no, I actually did fact check that because I looked and I found the slide deck that had that and there's no footnote. And then there was like a Snopes article or something about do humans really have less of an attention span than a goldfish? And they were like, this is not back. Right. And then I, cr- I cried a little for the same reason you're saying that. Because- no, I know it's like it's but, you know, this is this is the thing because we, we clearly have academic friends um, <laughs> and, and, and they and they don't like they don't enjoy Malcolm Gladwell's work for this fact that he will always choose the better story over the actual information, correct information. Although I have to say, I just saw, I saw, just saw an academic paper the other day that had a reference to the goldfish, which is why it's kind of at the top of my mind. So I yeah. think we're all vulnerable to that. Oh, of course yeah. we are. Cause, cause yeah. you get hooked on a, a, a good story and that that's, that's the power. That's the power of storytelling. Exactly. Exactly. But I just feel like I need to speak up for the goldfish of this world, you know, like they can't do it for themselves. <laughs> so you also talk about uh, humor uh, also germane to my life's work. Um, and you note that quote humor also reduces our risk of stress and anxiety related diseases such as heart attacks and strokes. And there's like real research on this, right? Laughter yeah, and humor. There, there is, it's kind of nuts to, well, maybe it's not at all. It's actually not nuts at all. I take it no. back because it, okay. it, it's nuts that it seems like it's nuts. I think That's it's right. nuts that we, we end up thinking that this is not an important thing. When, if you actually think about it, when we're laughing together, laughter is a good feeling, right? And, and it's interesting to recognize that a lot of times a few things that feel good when we do them actually are good for us. Right. We don't need to get so intellectual about it. It's like, oh, when you're laughing with someone, well, what are you doing? You're, you're sharing a bond. You're connecting with them on a human level. You're releasing stress. You're very much present, right? You're in flow for even that, that little moment of time. The moments when we laugh with people are often some of our fondest memories. I mean, once you actually start thinking about it, and I think this is true for fun too, you realize, oh, wait, that's not actually frivolous at all. That's no. really important. And then you look into the research about what happens hormonally when we're laughing. And in that the book we were discussing before, call it Humor Seriously, which is a wonderful book that I recommend. They talk a lot about you know the release of, of oxytocin and endorphins and yeah. just how, how there's, a, there's a reason physiologically why it feels good, in other words. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, it has spent my career here and, and most of that career was not doing what we're doing now. It was producing comedy shows with really funny people um, and, and making comedy and observing night after night, uh, this different, wildly different audiences, all laughing at the same things at the same time. It, it is, I, I can't even express what a powerful feeling that is um, in, in both, both, both just in being around it, but also is being part of the team that's crafting it. And crafting those moments of like, oh, I know if I cheat out a little bit or I say this line like a beat later, it's going to get a bigger laugh. And, and it's like, it, it's, it feels like magic, but it's actually not. There's an art and a science to and a math uh, to it, of course. Uh, but it's, it's and it, you know, that, that's, that's the real value. And I, I think one of the reasons, you know, when we could finally reopen the theater, we were just like, every seat was gobbled up right away. People were yeah. missing that. Yeah, that uh, what um, Adam Grant wrote a New York Times piece that I, for, I think it's Emil Durkheim. I'm trying to remember the person who actually coined this, but the feeling of collective effervescence. 
Mm. Which, by the way, is a term I can't say, as I just demonstrated, Collective but I put it in the effervescence. Book. Yeah, yeah no, that's a I, tough one. I that's like rural juror. Rural juror, exactly, exactly. <laughs> when I was narrating my audiobook, I had so many rural juror moments like rem- what was it particularly particularly that's very hard to say but anyway collective effervescence oh you nailed it thank you thank you that was a uh, practiced but i completely agree this feel it's a magical feeling when you have a shared experience with strangers and that energy and then to be the person who's able to produce it on command is amazing but i think you also bring up an interesting point where you know one thing i think people get wrong about fun and i would assume humor as well is that there's certain people who are funny or fun and then there's other people who could never right. be And there's this divide and you're never going to be able to bridge that divide. But when I asked people in my surveys, I asked him, I asked the members of this volunteer group, the fun squad, describe for me, someone from your life who you consider fun. And then I said, can you tell me why you think they're fun? And no one was like, well, they're really funny because they're six foot four, you know, or like, because they have blue eyes. It was like, oh, because they make everybody feel welcome in their presence or they laugh very easily, which I thought was very interesting, especially in the context of humor, where they're not being funny themselves, but they're making other people feel good about themselves and in turn, encouraging everybody to feel safe, letting down their guard and that that makes other people feel like you're fun. And even the biggest introvert has the ability to laugh easily at things someone else is saying. You know, so I just love the idea that this is much more accessible than we might give ourselves credit for than we might believe. And I mean, obviously, some people are going to be a lot better at standing behind a microphone and making people laugh than others. But there's still an ability to bring humor into our everyday lives for all of us. And it's much more yeah, accessible than we typically think. I didn't write this in my notes, but I don't, I don't know why I didn't. So I've mentioned my wife and she runs the first ever BA comedy writing and uh, a comedy major at, at Columbia College. And her new book is called Funnier. And the reason it, it's that is because dads, uh, mostly dads, will come up to her at open houses and say, are you going to make my daughter funny? And she goes, I can't make them funny. I can make them funnier. Huh. And the idea is that everyone has a certain kind of humor quotient. Uh, and when they understand their authentic selves, they can heighten that in some regard. Now, you know, like I hired Tina Fey, it was pretty clear that that ceiling was really, really high Good job there. Yeah. I think yeah. You, you made the right uh, call. So that was, that was definitely the right call. And, and, and then, but there's, and there's others that you think are going to go there and they, and they don't, and it's not that they're not good and they, they end up doing okay. Um, but everyone's got something uh, that they can develop to a certain degree. Uh, it, and, and then some people don't, shouldn't, shouldn't do it. Just like the way my wife describes it is like, she can't do a chin up. She's never going to be able to do it. <laughs> So she should not be in a chin-up contest or a class. That's interesting. But it, it, but it is interesting to think that it's like maybe the solution there is you just find other people who are funny and you just hang out with them. Like for the, the example oh, I totally. think of, which I include in my book, which I, I wonder if you've actually participated in. Well, I have this story in my book about how I was in, I grew up in Manhattan. And at some point I was in New York in like 2005 or even before then, it was earlier. And it was January or some very cold month. And I was on the subway platform and I looked to my side, you know, kind of scanning the crowd the way that a you do to make sure you're not going to have anyone weird next to you on the subway. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh God, that person doesn't have pants on. There was just this person with no pants on. And I was like, Oh, Whoa, got to get into a different car. And, you know, I, I diverted the last moment. I felt very proud of myself for my quick thinking. And then I get into this subway car and the doors slide shut. And then I breathe a sigh of relief and I look around and I'm like, Oh my God, there's all these people <laughs> with no pants on the subway car. What the hell is happening? You know, and promptly then like I'm overhearing conversations like, Oh, I don't know what happened this morning. Normally I brush my teeth and then I put my pants on, but I guess I just forgot to brush my teeth this morning, you know? And then like someone yeah. walks through the car with this giant garbage bag going pants pants for a dollar and it was 
the work of improv everywhere. And it was this big global, you know, no pants subway ride that I think at its peak had 4,000 participants in New York alone and became a global thing. Anyway, my point being, you might not be the person who's organizing the no pants subway ride, but you can drop your pants, right? Anyone can drop their pants. Metaphorical pants. So I think that's a beautiful example. (laughs) Metaphorical pants. You should trade, write down, trademark that. Metaphorical I'm pants. It. I'm going to write it down um, as this scrap of paper. <laughs> yeah, we had we had Charlie on the podcast to talk about that and some of the other work nice. that, that those guys have done. Um, did you take your own fun frequency questionnaire? <laughs> I don't think I have a numerical score, but yes, I did. I did. Well, when, before I was writing the book, which asks you like how much fun you think you're having or do you regularly experience delight, things like that. Do you want to guess I'm, what my score was? Um, I would like to think it was pretty high. Yes. 50. You, what? Guys, that's the highest score you could get. That's but of so course high. it is. Look where, look where I work. I've worked for 33 years at Second City. I, don't, I feel like a lot of comedians are tortured. So I, I'm not a comedian. Oh, ooh, I walked right into that, as I was saying, and I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, no, but I, and, 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 you know, no one gets into comedy because they're well-adjusted is a line <laughs> I've used very often. Um, and, that's, and that's very true. And a lot of people, improv in particular, uh, they come for the therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. of it the, the sort of that that idea of a place where you can be wholly present uh and and you're not thinking about the past or the future the space of non-judgment all, all those different, yeah. we do so much work and with social anxiety and, and that sort of thing yeah but but being the sort of facilitator the hirer the executive whatever allows a little bit of distance to be able then to just sort of like experience a lot of delight not that there's not like we're a bunch of drama queens too. There's no, there's quite a bit of crying that happens in second city. Uh, So, uh, but, but, but it's all balanced, but by, by the humor and, and look, laugh, my favorite line, Joni Mitchell, life laughing and crying, you know, it's the same release. Um, But I do think that you should really, I mean, that, I think that is really wonderful that you scored a 50 because I feel that so many people, even if they come into their career, loving it at some point do become jaded or they don't take the same joy in it. And it sounds like you do. So Really, that's wonderful yeah. to hear. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, not, there's a lot of pain on the way here, uh, right, and, right, right. and and I'm sure I'm not 50 in every moment. Right. But generally speaking, um, I think it was too. You talk in that chapter about the importance of loss of control. Again, a thing I think people would be like, "What? what like, what, why would that be important?" So, I'd love for you to talk about that. Well, I think it just has a lot to do with our self-judgment and criticism, as we were talking about, and our perfectionism. There's actually a, a fair amount of research into perfectionism, just showing how bad it is for us and mm. how it increases depression and anxiety. And I think it's becoming ever more of an issue, thanks in part to the pressures we're putting on kids to perform at younger and younger ages. And also because of the the rise of social media and things like YouTube, where people are, no one's posting their first try on YouTube, you know, like you don't go to YouTube. Most Hopefully not. Right. To watch people suck at stuff. I mean, yeah. that's a different genre of video, but you see these and all these competitions on TV, these where people are yeah, competing with each other to win this contest where they're all already amazing at what they're mm-hmm. doing. I think this sets really unrealistic expectations, but it also means... Well, sorry, it's also coupled with the perception we have that we're performing our lives rather than living them, which is definitely being amplified by social media. Yeah. You know, you're not actually present because you're thinking about what's this picture going to look like, or right. how am I going to put this? How am I going to frame it so that I can get more likes instead of just enjoying the moment? And in order to enjoy the moment, I think you do have to let go and you do have to stop having that little second, 
you know, person on your shoulder watching you from the outside. You need to let go of that kind of meta awareness and that fun when we're having fun, we are not judging ourselves. Right. So judgment will get in the way of fun. So you, it's interesting to think which comes first, right? You have to clear judgment away before you can have fun. But when you're having fun, you're not judging yourself. No. And I think fun can sneak up on you because we've all had moments of fun that we haven't planned or anticipated. And it's interesting to reflect on how freeing those moments feel. And I think the reason they feel so free, free and joyful is that we're not being self-critical. And that can be yeah. just such a relief and a release more so now than ever. We do. We, uh, uh, Second City is brought into Harvard for a class that Francesca Gino and Francis Frey teach. And I remember after the first class, uh, Francesca has become a pal. She was like, the, the most eye opening moment was when uh, your instructor showed us that you cannot be improvising and, and, be, and, and be creative and being in judgment at the same time. Yes. And here we find why I found the improv class so difficult because yeah. <laughs> that act of pretending gets my inner critic. She's like, oh, yeah. here I am. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and, and good to know. Good to know. Okay. I, in a moment, I'm going to ask for the yes and story. Uh, but before I do that, you have this lovely paragraph. It, I posted on LinkedIn. I'm, it's getting a lot of people loving it. Um, it's a little long, but I do want to read it. Uh, and it's about making space, which is a title of one of your chapters. And you say making space means clearing mental and physical clutter. It means reducing resentment, letting go of unnecessary responsibilities, and creating boundaries to protect your time and attention from people and companies trying to steal it from you. It means building stillness and open, openness into your schedule so that you have room for more moments of playfulness, connection, and flow. The goal is to create a space for you to design and build the life you actually want. That's a killer paragraph, man. <laughs> Thank you. I've never had it read to me. That's, that's right. Good. But it's, it's pretty good stuff when you hear it back to you, it's right? Bad. It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, but it, it is a, a really nice collection of thoughts that points to how you reclaim agency over your life. And, and, and part of that is you, you have to recognize the importance of these things of, of, of true fun. It's not frivolous. It's, it's, it's life. It's, right? I completely agree. I mean, the moments in which we truly have fun are the moments in which we feel joyfully alive. You know, they're the yeah. moments we look back on and we remember and we savor and they help carry us through difficult times. I think one of the most common misperceptions about fun is you can only have fun if you're already doing well. And so people, right. or if you're in an exotic location, like on a vacation, so that people will say, well, this is the middle of a pandemic. Like, how am I supposed to, first of all, even think about fun? There's so many horrible things in the world right now. And then how can I possibly have it because I'm stuck at home, you know, or whatever. Yeah. But I think the opposite is true. And I personally have found that the process of writing the book really, because I signed the book contract in April of 2020. So this is definitely a pandemic. Nice. Project. And the process of thinking and writing about fun in the midst of a global pandemic certainly has been challenging in certain ways, but yeah. it's been really really helpful in just reorienting my own priorities and making me appreciate everyday moments for playfulness, connection and flow, and then prioritizing the right things. I mean, just last night, like it's, I live in Philadelphia, which I recognize is not as cold as Chicago, but we had, it wasn't that cold last night. And so I, I and I'm not going to my, I normally go to guitar class. I didn't go in person because of Omicron and, yep. um, but I texted some friends and we got together in this parking lot after class. Like I met the people who were in class. We hung out until 10. The other week I did the same thing and stayed out till three in the morning. And it's like, oh I, my. Never, I know crazy. I go to bed at 1030 most of the time, 10 o'clock. Yeah. But I, I just 
knew that the, that was going to energize me. Even now, looking back at that 3 a.m. night, that was in December. I still feel happy thinking back on that. Right. And it makes me better able to cope with whatever the next phase of life may bring. And yep. that's backed up by you know, scientific research, this fact that positive experiences aren't just the results of being already doing, you know, already doing well, they actually help us cope with and weather future periods of stress. Yep. Yep. All right. Do you have a yes and story for us? I feel like I've got a lot of yes and stories for you. I think you do too. <laughs> well, one is just, I guess, related to what I was just saying, which is that I think when you're faced with something such as a global pandemic, we've got a choice of what to do in response to it. And it can seem like it would be impossible to prioritize fun. But I would say that for me personally, my response has been to say, yes, this sucks in many ways. And mm-hmm. I'm going to try to make the best of it. I know that some of your guests have touched on this in different ways themselves earlier, but for me, that's been like, all right, well, yes, I can't go on an exotic trip right now and, or, but whichever, but I'm still, I can still find moments and I can still find moments in my everyday life for playfulness and connection and flow. Right. You know, this conversation has been an example of true fun for me because I'm in flow and I'm having fun. I mean, sorry, I'm feeling playful and we're connected. And I think that once we start to notice the moments of playful connected flow that already exist, then we begin to see more of them and we right. begin to benefit more from them. Yeah. And just an example that that stood out to me that actually was shared with me by a comedian that I just thought was so beautiful. He was telling me about how he had had an experience of true fun for a full two hours with mm-hmm. his nephew, just sitting on a park bench, trying to catch leaves as they fell from a tree. <laughs> Yeah. And I loved that. And actually, I mean, I freaked out in the conversation with him because I said, oh my God, Joe, you made the metaphor literal. Because I'm yeah, always right, saying, right. right? Like there's these opportunities and these pre existing moments of playfulness and connection and flow floating all around us. And our our work is to notice them and grab them and appreciate yeah. them. And yeah. There he was literally grabbing leaves. I just couldn't, I couldn't have made it up. I was very grateful. But that, that is it. my my yes and story. Uh, The book is called The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. Catherine Price, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. Our producer and editor is Ashley Byhun, and we are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more or working with The Second City, go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.